I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Seth, long time no see, bud. How are you? I'm great. It's great to see you, too. I am so excited. Now, real quick, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about where you are recording from today, because it's not your normal. Now, usually I have an entire podcasting setup with the the boom mic in my office where it's nice and quiet. But here it's pretty quiet, too, because I'm in Camden, Maine, recording via my phone. So if the audio quality is not quite as good, that's why. Camden, Maine is about halfway up the coast, and it's mm. really cool here. It's like 68. Ooh, that sounds it's amazing. It's beautiful. I'm still in the swampy summer of Ashland, Virginia, so uh, I envy that cool, cool weather. I miss you too, but I'm glad, uh, glad that we're getting back together after a few weeks off. I, I enjoyed the break, but I missed you a lot. Same. It was strange not doing this for a little bit it's truly like the longest we've gone without like regularly yeah, talking sure. to each other and <laughs> since we started it's like more than a year ago now i would just but send one you of the, memes <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but one of the things that i missed the most was asking you a particular question what would you do in this particular situation and this is a very relevant question would you want to vacation by a lake, in the mountains, or at the beach? you got three options to choose from this time. Oh, man. Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with mountains. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I love to hike. Like That's one of the reasons we came to Maine. So I'm going to go with mountains. I like the beach, but... I primarily enjoy sitting on the beach with, like, a good book reading. But you can also do that in the mountains. So I'm going to go mountains. One of my favorite beach vacations of all time, Seth, was the one that we took together. (laughs) Spring break of our senior year of college, which, you know, we were really turning up in early March in Ocean City. How many rounds of mini golf did we play? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It had to have been. It was at least four, wasn't it? Was oh, it at more least. Than, was it I was significantly it was more than that. I, I was might still at least have six. Whatever have it was, it's, yeah, I have the spreadsheet with our scores. So I, I have very fond memories of being at the beach. A lot of them with you. I would also pick mountains, but I think I would want to cheat and say my ideal vacation would be by a lake in the mountains. Like okay, that's a good b- one. By the water, but also in the mountains. All the activity, all the views. I mean, the beach is beautiful, the ocean is beautiful, but it's also kind of all the same, at least where I've been to it. 
Like, I feel like the East Coast is everyone's obsessed with the beach. But our beaches are terrible. They're just full of, like, kitschy souvenir shops, cheesy mini golf courses, which are the highlights, and, like, really flat brown sand and brown water. Like, if you went to the beach, I don't know, somewhere where the water was clear or, like, on the West Coast where there are, like, cliffs and stuff, maybe a little more fun. I'm with you. I love the beach. But once you've been to one beach, you've been to almost every beach on the East Coast, at least. Yeah, that's the caveat there. Well, be interested to see how we think about rest and comfort as part of today's scripture lesson. So why don't you go ahead and read our psalm for us today? I would love to. This is Psalm 23 from the King James Version. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a classic text. But why did you pick the King James Version for this week? Well, I figured we'd come back with a bang, you know, and come back and bring out the I would say most widely used English translation in history uh, in part because this is a classic passage of scripture and this passage in this version may be, this is just my own speculation, but it may be the most quoted and read passage of scripture in this version or not I think the 23rd Psalm is something that even folks who wouldn't consider themselves religious might have some level of familiarity with. It comes up in so many different commonplaces. Uh, And so I wanted to look at it in this really classic translation. A little bit about the King James Version. It was commissioned by, you guessed it, King James in 1604 uh, and completed seven years later in 1611. So we're talking now 410 years ago that this version was released. There have been different reprintings and republications and other things since then, but a lot of the language has largely stayed the same. It's been the longtime standard for English-speaking Protestants, I'd say probably until the later half, or maybe even the later part of the last century, so like the late 1900s. Now, I want to be clear... I don't like the King James Version. I'm not here to make a lot of arguments about it because there is a lot of documented history about how it makes really overtly sexist interpretive choices. The scholarship and the use of the original languages and manuscripts is really limited, in, if you know, well done at all. <laughs> and I think most importantly, maybe not most importantly, but also significantly, We've learned a lot in the past 410 years that probably should inform how we interpret, translate, and read scripture. That's where I'll leave it for now. 
but I thought this passage was too classic to pass up the opportunity to read this psalm in this moment in time. So, knowing all that, as you read this famous passage, what stood out to you? The first thing that jumps out to me is that in the third line, he restoreth my soul, he leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Those two parts of the verse are separated by a colon, as if the the second part is how God restores the speaker's soul. I think I thought of those as two distinct ideas, that God restores the speaker's soul, and then God leads him or her in the path of righteousness. So it's interesting to think about those together, especially since that's that seems to be how the how the psalm is structured, right? Like each verse kind of has these two parts to it. So that's the first thing that strikes me. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to make that connection. You know, a lot of psalms work in couplets and parallelism and making that connection between those two lines, I think, makes a lot of sense. Was there uh, anything else that stood out to you? What strikes me next is this image of a shepherd. Now, I've always liked that image. I think of these lamps that my grandma had, and they're like table lamps, and the shepherd's crook like becomes the, the stem of the lamp that the shade sits on. And honestly, I never really thought that they were that pretty. Uh, but when my grandma passed away, my dad saved them for me. And at the time, I was kind of disappointed. Because again, I don't really think they're that pretty. They're kind of a strange lamp. But I do think it speaks not only to, to kind of what the job of a pastor is, but also what God does both for pastors and kind of for everyone, right? At least especially the psalmist. The idea of a shepherd is why the bishop in some traditions will carry that like weird-looking crook thing, and also why the bishop processes in last in like a liturgy because they they watch over everyone else like a shepherd. So anyway, I like that imagery and especially that the psalm starts that way. Yeah, and you're certainly not alone in valuing that image, Seth. I mean, this psalm is. Again, probably one of the most quoted, if not the most quoted passages of scripture. And I think the imagery of the shepherd has a large part to do with that. How deeply embedded it is in our culture. Uh, Can I point out a few things that I really liked digging into about this psalm that I hadn't really known before? Yeah, I would love that. Awesome. Well, I want to go back to that same verse you just highlighted, verse 3 talks about how God restores the psalmist's soul. Um, you know that if we're looking at a psalm, that I went to one of our favorite resources, the Alter Psalter, looking at Robert Alter's translation and commentary on this passage. He talks about how the word, the Hebrew word for that's translated soul in most English translations is the Hebrew word nefesh. And soul just doesn't cut it. Soul has so many ties to traditions that just talk about the soul as like this disembodied part of the self that, you know, needs to escape the body when we die, and that's what goes to heaven. Nefesh is more like life or life essence. 
it, it's what God breathed into humanity in creation. It, it feels more like a contained fire, and soul just feels a little more sterile to me. So God rekindling the psalmist's nefesh, the spirit, the, the life of the spirit, and then connecting that to those pathways of righteousness. I don't know. That's that's just it's just an interesting catch that is made a lot of other places, and I wonder if modern translators feel pressure to keep this passage mm. in a similar form because mm. it is so well known. The other thing I wanted to point out, I mean, there are some other things we could explore, but the other thing I wanted to point out was how decadent <laughs> verse 5 is. <laughs> and I think that's the word that comes to mind because it's repeating this idea and repetition in Hebrew scriptures is essentially adding an exclamation point to a particular idea. So we talk about how the psalmist doesn't fear anything because God is with them. And then the psalmist says, talks about setting a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my, as you read in the King James Version, my cup runneth over. Each of those images is hmm. so decadent <laughs> and it's such it's such a juxtaposition with you know a sheep following a shepherd even but more so a juxtaposition with someone who's walking through the valley of the shadow of death and not being afraid and instead of being in that position where they could be fearful and full of trepidation they're instead eating a feast at the you know hmm. almost at the expense of their enemies they are being anointed as we often tra translate it but that word again looking at the original language the word can be translated anoint but it's not the word that's used to describe anointing in a religious sense or hmm. you know the words that are related to like the anointed one or things like that it's actually a word that robert alter translates as moisten <laughs> <laughs> um, I read one translation. It wasn't. It was kind of looking at this word that says uh, "grease up," <laughs> <laughs> which I just found disgusting and hilarious. But you know, this is what this is what Alter says. This verse then lists all the physical elements of a happy life: a table laid out with good things to eat a head of hair well rubbed with olive oil, and an overflowing cup of wine. Mm -hmm. so, so that juxtaposition there with your, you know, greasy face, <laughs> which, again, <laughs> is, is, it's, a symbol, it's a symbol of honor, it's a symbol of comfort. Like, I think decadence is the word that stands out for me. Uh, so any, any of that resonate with you? Those were just some interesting things that I, I found while I was exploring this passage a little more. Yeah, I love that idea of the really decadent feast and anointing. That's beautiful, especially in contrast to like walking in the shadow of the valley of death. We move from that to what I can only hear is like a feast now. Yeah, that, what a powerful, what a powerful movement that happens in one line. Mm -hmm. Well, we've done this before when we've talked about psalms, but 
you read this, we're talking about it a little bit. We know that psalms are meant for worship. So yeah. what kind of settings do you think Psalm 23 feels most appropriate in? This is a great question because I feel like I hear this psalm most often in like a devotional, personal mm. context, right? Like in one that's separate from kind of communal, public yeah. worship. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I most often hear this at funerals. Oh, I mean, I think yeah. it's I think it's the default, probably at most funeral homes, and unless they have something else, that the, another passage of scripture that they want on the the program or the bulletin, uh, or if they don't want one at all, unless that's the case, this is usually the default on the back of every <laughs> program I've seen. Uh, it's so common. And it's interesting to think about too, of at the moment of death, the passing passing over from life into death, the idea of God being a shepherd through that time is a pretty powerful image. But I think it also resonates with the folks who are there on this side too, on this side of life, uh, saying, you know, even even though I walk so close to death, even though feel like we're knocking on death's door i will not fear for you're with me you know that's a that's a powerful place for this i wonder with that if you could use it in services that that aren't funerals but that want to take lament seriously like i'm thinking about some churches that do these like blue christmas services that like right. try and lean into the way that christmas can be uncomfortable and sad for some mm-hmm. people this seems like a text that you could use in that context like really fruitfully and you could you could maybe reinterpret it for some people right right like you don't have to always see it in the context of a funeral you could also hear it in the context of this advent service right. yeah. in a way that's still encouraging well i'm glad i'm glad you brought up that reference seth because i think it helps me a little bit transition to a conversation about a point of this psalm I think a lot of this psalm centers around the idea of comfort. And I'm not talking about like excess. I'm not necessarily talking about decadence. But we see here and we we have portrayed for us by the psalmist a picture of a God who offers deep, rich comfort in the midst of devastation. When the nefesh has been extinguished, God restores it by offering guidance down the right paths Hmm. god leads us as sheep by still waters and to lie down in green pastures again interesting connection to both food and water when we're thinking about sheep too but these instances where comfort is what we need and maybe consolation is a better word that is where God meets us, what they provide for us. And that's that, for me, it's, it feels really easy to make the jump from God wants us to be consoled to God wants us to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. I feel like that jump can cause a lot of problems. And ultimately, I'm thinking about these settings where we feel like the table needs to be set our skin needs to be moisturized uh and and our cup and our cup i'm sorry and our cup needs to be full 
and often think about at whose expense do those moments of decadent comfort come and how can we think about the consolation and comfort that God offers us in a way that is connected to the whole story of scripture to God's whole story this is about paying attention to and caring for those that are left out and left aside does that make sense I, I I think it's a little bit of a jump but I don't I don't want us to take the idea that God offers consolation to those who need it and jump to the idea that God wants us to be comfortable, comfortable in the sense of being decadent and complacent and honestly exploitative too for the sake of this idea that we stretch out of this passage I think that you're making a crucial point. Like, that's a key distinction. How far can we push consolation, right, without it turning into just comfort, I think is exactly what you said, right? Like, it's the difference between, like, a theology of accompaniment, like God with people in the midst of their sorrows, and one that's, like, a, a theology of prosperity, Right, in which like God wants people to get ahead, like seems like the right. At least that's those are the ways that this distinction can play out. Absolutely, that's really pressing on my mind right now. Um, another podcast, one that's far more popular than ours, called Throughline from NPR. Just it's a history podcast, and they just finished a three week series on the history of capitalism, and the hosts hmm. uh, Run Dabdi Fatah and Ramtin Arablouei went through in the final episode how closely American capitalism has been tied to American religion, especially American evangelical Christianity. Hmm. And the the fact that we, we so easily can take images like God offering comfort and consolation, God preparing a table and overflowing our cup before our enemies, the idea that Jesus offers of offering abundant life and utilize that to justify living a life of excess a life of decadence and how those the jump from what I believe is a theology of God's kingdom of God's reign and realm that desires for all people to have everything that they need to be able to thrive to be able to live abundantly the line between that idea and the line of the prosperity gospel of if you are faithful enough, God will make you wealthy. It's not, those things aren't that far apart. And without Mm. careful attention to say, at whose expense does our comfort come? Like who's hurting because we are seeking this comfort? I think it is very easy to not just tiptoe over, but to sprint past that line into a place that holds God's comfort as something that we've earned for being who we are, being born where we've been born, descending from whom we've descended. It's a fine line, Hmm. and it's a hard one to walk. Yeah, this line that we're walking between consolation and comfort seems to me to be the same line that's between verse 4, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and five, and thou prepares the table before me in the presence of my enemies. Like the same way that those move back and forth 
is the same the same way that we can we can slip into comfort in our theologies. Mm. It's so interesting to think about the ways that we read this and we know how the psalm ends because we've heard it a million times and we want to get to the end. Like we want to push past the beginning part about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's like let's fly through that and let's get to verse 5 and especially 6. That surely your goodness and mercy should follow me all the days of my life. Like, we want to skip past the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> yeah, the fact that both of them are there is so crucial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because because there are times, I think, especially for folks of our backgrounds and of our social locations, experiencing the kind of privilege that we do in our world, I don't think we are in as deep of need of the comfort and consolation that God offers here in this psalm. We have, we have set things up around us to try to be that comfort and be that consolation. And they can't measure up. And in that sense, we are still in need. But our valley of the shadow of death often includes, <laughs> often includes a lot more support. Is, is what I'm saying making sense? There's a temptation to read this psalm as though we're the ones walking through this terrible valley of the shadow of death. Right, which may be the case, like certainly yeah, if absolutely. I if I'm understanding you, that there's like there's certainly things in our life that are valleys of the shadow of death, but there are also people who are who are walking through those valleys that are that are darker or deeper. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To be that's an important distinction. That to be clear, like God's consolation and comfort is for all people. I think for me, what what's coming to mind is heading to a feast for dinner after having a feast for lunch <laughs> versus not having eaten for weeks, you know? Yeah. Like, in a lot of ways, I believe that the table God prepares is for those that have not had, that have been living in the shadow of death, that have been knocking on death's door, that have been cast aside, cast down. All of us can eat there, but I think those of us that have had a meal recently, to keep extending this metaphor, we don't depend on it as much because we think we can get the same stuff elsewhere. The food's going to taste a lot better if you haven't eaten for a long time. It's not that everyone doesn't need to eat, but sometimes meals mean more in certain circumstances than they do in others. Well, I'd love to pray for us to close this out, if that's all right. Yeah, that would... That would be a perfect way to end this excellent so i thought it might be interesting to be inspired in my prayer by psalm 23 and so i i tweaked some of the language a little bit and adjusted it to be to be a petition prayer to be something that we ask for rather than a declarative statement about who god is and what god does so will you pray with me i would love to god Be our shepherd. Provide for us our every need. We are weary. Lead us to places of sacred rest. We are wanderers. Lead us on a journey to you, with you. We are weary of the road before us. Comfort us with your loving kindness. We are working and waiting toward a day when your justice will prevail. 
set the table so all may feast. Let us see your goodness and mercy in your house, above and below, before and behind, within and beyond, forever and always. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're going to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it.